continue our study in Mark's gospel, and we've come to chapter 14, verse 12. So let me invite you to open with me to Mark chapter 14, and verse 12, and our text will extend on to verse 21 of Mark 14. We've at last come to what is called the Passion Narrative. This is the suffering and the death of Christ in Jerusalem. And everything has been moving toward this, especially beginning with the prediction back in chapter 8. Jesus, at that point, began to tell them what must happen to him in Jerusalem. In the previous sermon, as we were looking at the beginning of Mark 14, we saw how Jesus was anointed by a woman with very costly ointment, and he was anointed for his burial. And today we look at what has been called the Last Supper on the night of our Lord's betrayal. And this Last Supper, it comes very clear in this text, was a Passover meal. And being a Passover meal, in light of this, I want to read a couple of brief selections from the Old Testament. You don't need to turn there. You could just listen as I read, beginning with Exodus chapter 12, the first Passover, as God was delivering his people out of Egypt. So I begin in Exodus 12 at verse 5, as they're speaking about the lamb that they were to take and to slaughter. God says to his people, your lamb shall be without blemish. A male of the first year, you may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. Then they shall eat the flesh on that night. Roasted in fire with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat it raw, nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in fire, its head with its legs and its entrails. You shall let none of it remain until morning. And what remains of it until morning, you shall burn with fire. And thus you shall eat it with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. So you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover, for I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So this day shall be to you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. And then let me read from Deuteronomy chapter 16. I'll just read the first three verses as Moses is reviewing the Passover. Observe the month of Abib and keep the Passover to the Lord your God. For in the month of Abib, the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. Therefore, you shall sacrifice the Passover to the Lord your God from the flock and the herd 
in the place where the Lord chooses to put his name. And at the time of our Lord's ministry, that was the temple in Jerusalem. Verse 3, you shall eat no leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread with it. That is the bread of affliction. For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste, that you may remember the day in which you came out of the land of Egypt all the days of your life. And now our text in Mark 14, beginning at verse 12. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? And he sent out two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. Wherever he goes in, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large upper room, furnished and prepared. There, make ready for us. So his disciples went out and came into the city and found it just as he said to them. And they prepared the Passover. In the evening he came with the twelve. Now as they said and ate, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. And they began to be sorrowful and to say to him one by one, Is it I? And another said, Is it I? He answered and said to them, It is one of the twelve who dips with me in the dish. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. Let's again ask the Lord's help and blessing. Father, we thank you for this great privilege to gather in the name of Christ. And we ask that you would bless us now. As we open up your holy word, we ask for the assistance of your Holy Spirit. So send your spirit to help us, that we might behold wondrous things in your word. Strengthen faith today, awaken faith today, and save through Jesus Christ. Amen. Our text is glorious and wonderful on the one hand, and on the other hand, it is dark and sobering. Because as preparations are made for the Passover meal, this last supper, there are two individuals that are brought into focus. One, obviously, is our Lord, the Son of Man and the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And also, the one that Jesus calls that man, one in their midst, one of the twelve sharing a meal with Jesus Judas Iscariot. It's now Thursday, and it's the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, is what we read in verse 12. And Mark says that that was when the Jews in Jerusalem would kill the Passover lamb in preparation for the meal that they would have in the evening. Every Jewish male was expected to be present in Jerusalem for the Passover. 
In fact, there were three main pilgrim feasts, and they're called pilgrim feasts because they were supposed to take this pilgrimage, the Jewish males who were able, to Jerusalem every year for these feasts. So Jesus and the 12 are no exception. They're going to eat the Passover in a private room in Jerusalem. The record we have in Mark 14 is very brief. We have the preparations spelled out briefly for us in verses 12 to 16, and then we have the record of the meal in verses 17 and 26. What we get here is just a snapshot of this scene, of this great event. And it's like da Vinci's masterpiece, if you're familiar with it, called The Last Supper, which isn't entirely accurate, but it's a snapshot like that of this great event in redemptive history. And if you would compare John's gospel, he expands on what Matthew, Mark, and Luke have in their brief records. And we have in, ver- in chapters 13 to 17 of John's gospel what we call the upper room discourse and also the high priestly prayer, which we have in John 17. But this is just a snapshot. We don't have all of that extended discourse of Christ, but it's the same night and it's the same meal. Now, as I seek to open up this text, I want us to consider two things. And first is just the preparations that we see here for the Passover meal, and that's in verses 12 to 16. And then I want us to focus, secondly, on the announcement of betrayal, which we have in verses 17 to 21. And next time, Lord willing, we'll look at the institution of a new and of a better meal, the Lord's Supper. And that's in verses 22 to 26. And that Lord's Supper concludes Mark's record of Jesus' final meal just before his arrest and his crucifixion. So we look firstly at the preparations for this Passover meal, beginning at verse 12. Now the eating of special, what we might call celebratory meals, is something that has been a universal practice throughout history and even to this day. So just think of the holidays that are coming up that many of us look forward to. We have Thanksgiving, we have Christmas, we have New Year's. Can you imagine any of these holidays without special meals? We enjoy special meals for special occasions. And in a more personal sense, we often celebrate birthdays and anniversaries with special meals. You might have a special dish that you ask that somebody would make for you on these special occasions. Now, in most cases, these meals are not greatly symbolic. Your choice of food is not often symbolic, and it's not often religiously significant at all. But that's not the case with this meal, which is highly symbolic and very religiously significant. Even from the beginning, when it was instituted, it has been highly significant and symbolic. But this particular meal, This Passover meal that Jesus shared with his 12 disciples on the night that he was betrayed is even more significant because of what he's about to accomplish. Before we look at the preparations for the meal, we should briefly recall the institution, and we read about it just a few minutes ago, but that was well over a thousand years before these events in Mark 14. The Passover was the most important of the three ancient Jewish Jewish pilgrim feasts. And as I said, every Jewish male 
adult was expected to be there. Now, this feast, the Passover, is linked together with another one called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And that's a seven-day feast that began with the Passover meal. And as we read in Exodus 12, the Passover meal was to consist of roasted lamb, unleavened bread, and bitter herbs, a variety of these herbs. It was a sort of salad. The meal and all of its elements were instituted by God. Then there were some that were added by tradition later. But they were instituted by God as a memorial to cause them to remember their bondage in Egypt and then how God delivered them from that bondage out of Egypt. A special meal. So the lamb without blemish, which was to be slain, it symbolized the cleansing of sins. And it reminded them of that first Passover when God spared his people. The unleavened bread symbolized purity, but it also, being the bread of affliction, it served as a reminder that they were led out of Egypt in haste. There was no time for their bread, for their dough, to rise. The bitter herbs recalled the bitterness of their bondage in Egypt. As observant Jews, Jesus and his disciples are here in Jerusalem. They've come there to observe the ancient memorial feast in a private upper room, which has been furnished and prepared just for this occasion. We read that in verse 15. It's all ready. And the spread that would have been on the table certainly would have included the roasted lamb, the unleavened bread, and the bitter herbs. And we know from verse 22, the institution of the Lord's Supper, there was wine there that was customary at these Passover meals. And then whatever was in the dish that Jesus mentions in verse 20, that might have been a sauce of dried fruit and spices and wine. But it also might have been the bitter herbs with vinegar and salt. So that's the spread here at this meal. We don't know exactly if Jesus spoke of the deliverance from Egypt and all of the significance of that meal, but it's certainly possible that all of the usual rituals of the Passover meal had been gone through that night. But Mark and the other gospel writers are not concerned to tell us about those things. What we know without any doubt is that Jesus took this opportunity to have a special time with his disciples, to teach them, to tell them about what was going to take place take place and to prepare them for that. And he did so with instruction and even with warnings and promises. For example, of another helper. So we read about that in John, in that extended section about this night that Jesus promised to them another helper. He had been their helper, but he speaks of the Holy Spirit. And that's in John chapter 14. So he's taking this occasion one thing's very clear. This was a Passover meal like no other Passover meal. This Passover meal didn't just look backward at God's deliverance of his people from their bondage in Egypt, but it looked forward to what Jesus was about to accomplish, which was a far greater deliverance from a greater bondage that is a bondage to sin and to death and even the curse of the law. So this was a Passover meal like no other. Now I want us to see that the preparations begin with a question by the disciples in verse 
12. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? Of course, they're going to eat it too, but he's their master, that you might eat it and we with you. Where do you want us to go? Now remember, it's Thursday. The time has come to prepare the Passover meal. And most significantly, it was the time when people would kill or would sacrifice the Passover lamb, which would then be roasted whole and it would be eaten and no leftovers were permitted. They asked, where should we make preparations for this? And Jesus responds by sending out two of his disciples with very detailed instructions. Look at verse 13. And he sent out two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city, that's Jerusalem, and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water, probably on his head, be an earthen jar, a clay pot. He says, follow him. He continues, wherever he goes in, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large upper room furnished and prepared There, make ready for us. So first, these two disciples, which Luke tells us were Peter and John, they were to go into the city, Jerusalem, and follow a certain man. Jesus says he will meet you, this man. And they will recognize this man because there will be something unusual. He's going to be carrying a pitcher of water. That was not something that men usually did at that time. That was something that the women did. So this would have stood out to them. They were to follow this man. Doesn't say that they were to speak any words, but they would recognize each other. They would meet, and then they were to follow him into whatever house he entered, and then to ask the master of that house a particular question. You see that in verse 14. Tell him the the teacher says, where is the guest room? in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And this master of the house is going to know exactly what they mean. He's going to know exactly what they mean when he says the teacher, and he's going to show them a large upper room. It's all ready. It's furnished. It's prepared for this occasion. There is the place, says Jesus, that I want you to prepare this Passover meal. We pause at this point and ask the question, are we to see these details that Jesus is saying, you're going to see this man and he's going to have a jar on his head. He's going to follow you to this man. You ask him this. He's going to say this. Is this all evidence of Jesus' special divine knowledge? Because we know that he has special divine knowledge. On several occasions, we see that, that he knew what was in men's hearts when it was all kept secret. Jesus knew. I think certainly that's possible here. But I want to point out that it's not the only explanation. There is another explanation, and that is that Jesus had made very careful preparations for this. It's a careful plan, perhaps, that he's made arrangements with this master of the house who was a disciple who rather bravely is allowing Jesus, a wanted man, to use his home, and that he's given all of these special instructions about preparing the room, and then even this man with the water jar, that he's talked to him. 
So it's very possible that this is a careful plan, that this man, the language is interesting, he will meet you as if he's going to be looking out for these two disciples and will meet them and lead them to the right place. So I just point that out as a possibility, and I don't think that this interpretation in any way detracts from the glory of Christ. It highlights the fact, actually, that this was a very special meal that Jesus took special care to prepare for. But it does raise the question, why such a sneaky plan for preparing this meal with this sort of signal, and they're going to follow this man? Why would he do that? Well, a couple things come to mind. We know that Jesus is already in danger. As I said, he's a wanted man. And in John eleven fifty seven, 57, we read these words. Now, both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it that they might seize him. So he's in danger. It's not that he wants to escape death. He's gone to Jerusalem to suffer and die. That's why he's there. But it's that the time, the appointed hour, has not yet come. He still needs to have this meal. The meal needs to happen. So he needs to secure a place where he can be with his disciples. He has things to teach them, things to show them, ways that he needs to prepare them still. But another thing is simply that he wanted to secure a private meal with the twelve. You, you know how often Jesus went places and there were these throngs of people where they couldn't even eat. People were at the door. He didn't want that. He wanted to be somewhere where nobody knew where he was at and he could have this private meal, this last supper with his disciples to specially prepare them for what lies ahead. We're told that the room in which they will eat is already furnished and it's prepared. And among the things made ready in that room were a few ordinary items that would soon be put to extraordinary use. A basin, a towel, a container of water, maybe the container of water that this man carried on his head. We don't know. It's an interesting thought. These ordinary things would soon be put to an extraordinary use as we read in John's Gospel that Jesus would rise from supper and he would take these things and he would wash his disciples' feet. A demonstration of the deep love of Christ for his own as he goes around and washes all their feet, even the feet of the traitor, showing his patience that he could wash the feet of such a wicked man who would soon betray him. It's also a symbol of how he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life for them. It's a symbol of what he's about to do and of how what he's about to do will be for their cleansing, the cleansing of their soul, not just their feet. But it was an example to follow. So Mark doesn't record it. Matthew, Luke, they don't record this. But as we look at this, I think it's right that we pause and we meditate on this and consider that this was the night that Jesus washed his disciples' feet. Mark's record of the Passover preparations concludes with these words in verse 16. After all those instructions, we read, So his disciples went out and came into the city and found it just as he had said to them, and they prepared the Passover. 
So all is working according to plan. The venue and the meal are now ready. Even Jesus' betrayer is ready in the worst possible sense to do his wicked deed. And this too is according to God's predetermined purpose. As we look at these careful preparations for this Passover feast, we cannot miss the most important thing, the point of greatest significance. It's no mere coincidence that the death of Christ took place at the time of the Passover, when a great many lambs throughout Jerusalem would be killed, would be sacrificed in remembrance of God's deliverance of his people from their bondage in Egypt. So think about it. We're meant to think about it. God has orchestrated all of this at just the right time in history, even the season on the calendar. When Jerusalem again was filled with the blood of many lambs that were being sacrificed, there would also be the blood of the Son of God, the Lamb of God, shed at that time. One final and perfect sacrifice for sins forever, as is emphasized in Hebrews chapter 10. So what we see here, even in these rather mundane preparations for this meal, we see the gospel depicted for us simply and clearly the good news of salvation in this Last Supper. The timing of it all cries out to us like John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It cries out to us that he is the spotless Lamb who's about to be led as a sheep to the slaughter to finish the work that he came into the world to do. As he's reclining at table one last time and he's eating this special meal with his disciples, Christ, whom Paul calls our Passover in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, he's about to be sacrificed for us. He is about to shed his blood for us. And what can wash away our sin? Not the blood of lambs, but nothing but the blood of Jesus. So we should ask question like, how can any sinner hope to escape God's righteous wrath and his curse? Remember the first Passover, which we read about. When God passed through the land of Egypt and he struck all the firstborn, but he passed over his people who had put the blood of the lamb on their doors. He passed over and he spared them. Remember that. We're to think of that. And in the words of one man, as the blood of that lamb sprinkled on the doorposts, secured exemption from the stroke of the destroying angel on that night, a thousand or so years ago at the time, just like that, he says, so the blood of Christ secures exemption from the stroke of divine justice. Secures exemption from the stroke of divine justice. Let me ask, today, this morning, do you know that your sins are forgiven? Do you know that the blood of Christ has cleansed your sins, all of your sins? Do you know that? I hope that all of you know that. And I hope if you don't, that this 
picture of the gospel that we see in this Passover meal would cause you to think and to consider, but more than that, to look to him in faith. Because the Bible promises all who look to him in faith, trusting in his person and in his work, and that alone, will be saved, will have all of their sins cleansed and forgiven. So behold Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Those are the preparations for the meal. But let's look secondly at this announcement of betrayal, beginning in verse 17. The announcement of betrayal. Everything is ready. Evening's come. And Jesus, we read, goes with the 12 to eat the Passover. Verse 17 just simply tells us that. It's time now. Now they're all going to go. Maybe they were in Bethany. The two had gone before. They probably stayed there in Jerusalem. And now Jesus with the rest of the 10 go, and they're going to have the meal. Verse 17. This final meal is an especially intimate one in this private upper room. No other guests, no interruptions, no crowds gathering at the door looking for Jesus. Just Jesus and his chosen few the 12, as he calls them, who have been with him throughout his public ministry, who have witnessed firsthand his spotless character and who have received his private care and instruction. The 12 are here with Jesus. And as they're sitting, and literally they're reclining and eating, Mark tells us that Jesus makes an announcement that leaves them all very troubled and deeply distressed. And I think we all know what it's like to receive troubling news. The initial shock and disbelief when we hear the news, the sinking of the heart, the inward pain, sometimes even the confusion when we receive this kind of news. And we see that here. Jesus had already predicted again and again that he would be betrayed And that he would be killed, that all this suffering would happen, that he would be handed over into the hands of men and put to death. But now there's something different because it's more specific. And he tells them for the first time that it will be one among them. Look at verse 18. Here's something new in his predictions. Now, as they said in 8, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. We shouldn't imagine Jesus saying this in a matter-of-fact way, with a stone face, just saying, one of you is going to betray me. We know that Jesus was deeply troubled. John tells us so, that as he was making this announcement, he was troubled in spirit. He's grieved. Maybe his voice was even trembling as he says this to his disciples. And what a shock these words must have produced. As on that night, Jesus announces these words. The very fact that he gives that common introduction that we've seen again and again, which would tell them to listen up, I'm saying something, you might not believe it, but it's true. Assuredly, I say to you. That's an indication that Jesus expected that this announcement would be met with shock and even a sense of disbelief. Even though he had already told them John again tells us back in John 6, 
He had told them that one of them is a devil. Maybe they had forgotten that. I don't know. Now, the next detail of Mark's account is very vivid. Look at verse 19. He tells us they began to be sorrowful and to say to him one by one, is it I? And another said, is it I? More accurately, we could translate that question. It is not I, is it? Expecting a negative answer, but I think also maybe with some self-doubt. It's not I. I wouldn't do that, would I? So they're distressed by this announcement of a traitor. They're sad, shocked, even perplexed, John tells us in John 13, perplexed about whom Jesus spoke. They weren't thinking, oh, yes, Judas. Yeah, he's the devil in our midst. He's the one who's going to do it. No, they're perplexed. Jesus goes on to answer, but he doesn't give the name of his betrayer here. He restates his announcement, and no doubt still with great emotion, in verse 20, he answered and said to them after one by one, they had been asking, it's not I, is it? He answered and said to them, it is one of the twelve who dips with me in the dish. There that night, they'd been dipping in a shared dish, sharing an intimate meal. This serves to drive home the reality of what is happening here, of what is about to take place, but also surely to strike a blow at the conscience of Judas' heart, who was able to fool the other disciples, but not Jesus. He says in John, I know whom I have chosen. I know whom I have chosen. He knows all. He can't be fooled. The record of this scene concludes with these profound, these deep words of Jesus in verse 21. He says, the son of man indeed goes just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. Jesus is very careful to point out that none of this caught him by surprise and also that it was done to fulfill the scriptures. He's saying all that has been written, that is in the Old Testament scriptures, he's saying it's being fulfilled. He goes just as it has been promised and written in the word of God. So he emphasizes that. This is important teaching for them. He wants them to get this point. He has in mind especially what David in the spirit said in Psalm 41.9, even my familiar friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. He's betrayed me. That's Psalm 41.9. He wants them to know this before it happens, not just to prepare them for this, but also so that when it happens, they'll remember that he had said so, and it will strengthen their faith. Jesus spelled all of this out, but we only know that from John's account. In John 13, we read, Jesus says that the scripture may be fulfilled, then quoting Psalm 41, he who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. 
So this is given to us too, as we're studying this this morning, looking into this, this record of this announcement is given to us to strengthen our faith as well. And we might also say to silence doubters and to awaken faith in Jesus. Again and again in the scriptures, we see how what was written in the word of God is fulfilled. Here is another example. It's this mountain of evidence. The Old Testament is full of types and shadows and promises which are fulfilled in Jesus and are clearly shown to be fulfilled in Jesus. So we have abundant confirmation that the word of God is true. That not a single promise of God will fail. That all of God's promises will be accomplished. His purposes cannot fail. And the purpose of God that is particularly in view right now is his perfect eternal plan for our redemption to be secured by his son who would lay down his life, shed his blood, God gave his son. He did not spare him, but delivered him up for us all. That's his eternal plan of redemption. That is how sinners, and the only way that sinners can be saved, by the son of God who laid down his life as a sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice for sinners. We're meant to see this. And we're meant to see, as as terrible as this is, as wicked as the betrayal is, we're meant to see that it was according to God's perfect plan and that Jesus was perfectly willing to obey that plan. He wasn't reluctant and he knew exactly what he must do. All of the suffering and the pain and the cross, he knew it and he faced it. He went into it. He was obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross, as Paul tells us in Philippians 2. That comes out here in our text. The early church was gripped by this, the fact that all of this was happening according to plan. It was not a victory for these wicked men who were trying to silence Jesus. It was a victory for God and for the Son of God who triumphed over death. So, for example, Peter preached, and we have this in Acts 2, he preached that Jesus, even though he was taken by men, by lawless hands. He was put to death by men. Peter says he was delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. And then in Acts 4, we read about a prayer meeting of many disciples. They've come together and they're praying to God as the sovereign Lord, ruler of all things. And they acknowledge that all that was done against Jesus was exactly what God's hand and God's purpose determined before to be done. Acts 4.28. So the early church was gripped with this reality. The death of Christ and all of the details was according to God's plan. God's sovereign. That means he's ruling over all things. And it's encouraging to meditate on this. He rules over evil, all evil, for good. And in this case, for the greatest good, for the salvation of sinners. So let's meditate on that and let our faith be strengthened as we think of God's sovereignty. Consider now, though, those terrifying words spoken by Jesus of his betrayer. I'll read them again. But the Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him. 
But woe to that man by whom or through whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for him, that man, if he had never been born. Yes, Jesus goes as it is written. It couldn't be any other way. It must be so. He must be betrayed. We acknowledge that. Jesus acknowledges that. But the sovereignty of God, the fact that he's working out all things according to his perfect eternal plan, in no way does away with man's moral responsibility. In no way does the sovereignty of God lessen man's responsibility. So think about this. In a sense, Judas was carrying out the will of God even as he was disobeying it. The part he played in Jesus' death was absolutely wicked. It was an enormous sin. But it was also absolutely necessary so that the scripture might be fulfilled. So there's a great tension here. And Jesus puts these things together, God's sovereignty and man's moral responsibility, in particular this traitor, he puts this together and he doesn't resolve the tension for us. I'm not going to try to resolve it either. There's a lot of tensions like this in the scripture, you know, but we say, this is true, this is true. I don't have the wisdom to resolve it, God does. But here's this tension, God is sovereign, but man is responsible. This message of woe for Judas, he calls him that man. You wonder how Judas was feeling at this time. Or if he was so hard-hearted that he didn't feel anything. I mean, these were blows at his conscience, intended to be. So the message of woe for him could not be more clear or dreadful. It would have been better for him to have never been born. The fact that he doesn't repent at this point indicates just how hard his heart had become. That Jesus would say these things at this meal and he knowing what he's already going to do. Remember, he's already agreed to betray him for 30 pieces of silver. We looked at that last time. But his heart is hard. He will not repent. We can be sure that Jesus spoke these words of woe with great pain and pity. He didn't speak lightly of his betrayer's judgment. He never delighted in the hard-heartedness and the wickedness of his enemies. Never. It grieved him when people didn't believe and didn't repent and were hard-hearted, even to other people. It grieved him and it angered him with righteous anger. Think of the words of Ezekiel 33:11. As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why should you die, O house of Israel? So Jesus surely is grieved here and has no delight in what he announces about his betrayer. This example of Judas, of course, is meant to lead us to repentance and to a godly fear. We need to realize the awful possibility that somebody so close to Jesus, even ministering in his name, Judas preached the gospel, and it's probably safe to say he even cast out demons on Jesus' authority, 
not his own, that someone like that could in the end be cast out into outer darkness, eternal destruction, hell. Think of the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 7, 21. So we ought to think about such things, but there's something that I want to emphasize here, a most sobering thought, a reality. And I hope that everyone here outside of Christ will listen up and will take this to heart and will think about this and meditate, hear it as the words of Christ to you. Just as it was said of Judas, his betrayer, it could be said of all who do not repent and believe in Jesus. It would be better for them had they not been born. Think about that. All who do not repent and come to Jesus and find life in him. God has spoken very clearly about the way of salvation. And if you're an unbeliever and you're here, I'm imagining he's spoken to you especially clearly again and again and again in his word. John 3.36, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him or upon her. And of course, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever would believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So God has spoken clearly about the only way of salvation through his son and desires that all people would repent and come to Christ and find life in him. So if you're not a Christian, I want to ask you again, why do you not believe? Why have you not come to Christ? When salvation, when life, when peace is freely offered to you through Jesus Christ. When such a sacrifice has been made that can actually wash away all of your sins and give you access to God forever, why have you not believed? Why have you not repented? Why have you not come? Don't be like Judas where your heart gets so hard that someone like me could say this to you and you just yawn and it's just... mm. Just go on with my life. Why have you not believed? Freely offered you, precious blood has been shed that you might live, and today you can come to Jesus in faith. He freely gives eternal life to all who come to him in faith. Now, as we make our way through Mark's gospel, the cross is drawing nearer and nearer. And it's going to be our privilege over the next several weeks, not sure how long, maybe months, It's going to be our privilege to look at the Son of God accomplishing our redemption, finishing his work. It'll be our privilege to behold Christ, our Passover, offering up himself a sacrifice for us. And as we close this morning, I simply want to read a glorious text from Revelation 5, which, like our text, shows to us Jesus as the Lamb of God who is worthy of our highest trust and of our highest praise. You can turn there if you like. This is Revelation 5. We'll read verses 6 to 14. 
Revelation 5, beginning at verse 6. John speaking here, and I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne, and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor, and glory, and blessing, and every creature which is in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth, and such as are in the sea, and all that are in them, I heard saying, blessing, and honor, and glory, and power be to him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen, and the twenty-four elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father in heaven, we thank you for these glorious texts about our Lord. And we thank you for his love. We thank you that he did not spare himself, but was obedient to death, shedding his blood for us. Thank you for the remembrance of this, this morning. Write it upon all of our hearts. And may everyone here exalt the lamb who has been slain. May all find life in him. We pray in his name. Amen.